Good morning. I'm Ross Gilbert. Welcome to, to New Life Fellowship. I'm excited about, uh, I'm excited that God's going to do something big in all of our hearts this morning. So I'm looking forward to it. Uh, as some of you know, I, uh, I used to be an engineer. That's what I went to school for and I was trained for. And, uh, you know, engineering has always been sort of kind of on my radar since I can, as long as I can remember. When I was, uh, when I was a little kid, I always had to try to figure out, I always had to understand how things worked. I remember opening and closing the refrigerator door over and over again, trying to discover the switch. Where is that switch that actually turns it on and off, and then actually finding it and being able to turn the light on and off all on my own. And, uh, you know, I had to take things apart, try to figure out how it worked. And for the most part, I was able to put it back together, but uh, not always. But, uh, but that's just the way I thought, the way my brain worked. And so my mom at a very early, ra- early age kind of recognized that, that I could probably be uh, an engineer much like my, uh, my brother, her uncle, or my uncle, her brother. That's just weird other way around. Um, so I just seem to be wired as an engineer. I just seem to, it's how my mind works, it's how I think. And so for engineers, we try to break things down into their smaller components. And we try to understand how each of those little components work and then how they fit together in the larger scheme of things and larger systems and such. And, and so for me, I, I struggle to memorize things. Like, for example, memorizing, say, the book of Proverbs, I could never memorize that because it's just so random. But to understand like a book of Romans or something where I can see the logic, I can figure that out and I can begin to memorize that stuff. So this approach can come in handy in that way, trying to break down those larger systems. But the difficulty is I get trapped into that that temptation to always try to uh, understand things in a very simple way, uh, oversimplifying things from time to time, actually. And, and so the, the danger here is there are things in this world where you just can't fully understand. They're not meant to be fully understood. The, you know, the matters of the heart, uh, emotions, how love works, th- those are things that um, can't be easily quantified. But in oversimplifying it, we tend to know about them from a distance, but they don't have any real impact in our hearts then as a result. And, and so this could be especially true when it comes to studying the scriptures. Because within the scriptures, we hear of all kinds of testimonies of how great and powerful God is. We, we learn about how he, he opened up the Red Sea in order to let Moses and the Israelites cross. And, and how he, he then let the Red Sea come crashing down to protect them from Pharaoh and the, the Egyptian army. And we read about how in, in Daniel, the, the lion's mouths were shut so that Daniel could spend a whole night with the lions in the lion's den. And, and how he rescued Peter from a jail cell and, and, and all kinds of incredible things. And then there's all these other testimonies beyond the scriptures. You know, stories about people like D.L. Moody and uh, Amy Carmichael and Hudson Taylor and George Mueller. All kinds of incredible stories of how God has worked through these, these men and women seemingly to do the impossible. And so consistently over and over again, we learn how God is all powerful. We learn that God is all knowing. And we know and we learn that God is everywhere. It's some of the first things that I remember learning about God in Sunday school. But there's a problem. See, if that's all we kind of know, if we, if we only know that at a distance, it really leaves no impact or imprint upon us in our hearts. And so these truths, it's not enough just to know that God's all-powerful. I need to know that God's all-powerful to me. 
It's not enough to know that he's, he's all-knowing. I got to know that he's all-knowing for me. And, and it's not enough that he's everywhere. It's, he's got to be everywhere to me. I need to make these truths personal. Because if they're not personal, then it's kind of pointless. But if I can make it personal, if I can interact with these truths, now it's going to make a big, a big difference in my relationship with him. Because now I get to experience him in everything, in all my struggles, and all that I'm going through day to day. So this morning, that's what we're going to try to do. We're going to look at a, a very popular psalm, Psalm 139. That's what we're going to look at this morning. And Psalm 139 was written by David, and it was dedicated to the director of music. It was dedicated to a choir. It was meant to be sung. So don't worry, Peter, I'm not going to sing it to this morning. So you're excited about that, I'm sure. But it, understanding that it's a song can help us understand you know, kind of break it down, understand the, the format of what David was doing when he was writing it. So there, in this psalm, there's 24 verses, but it's actually broken down into four stanzas. So six verses per stanza. And, and the first three stanzas are, are kind of introducing um, characteristics of God. They're descriptive. They're describing who God is and what he's like. And it's in that fourth stanza that David then says, well, what's my response to all this? And really that those first three stanzas are leading up to the finale in that fourth stanza that's so powerful and why David wrote that, this particular psalm. So let's, uh, let's open up with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we're excited about what you're going to do. We're excited about how you're going to open our hearts and open our minds to this incredible, powerful truth of your unbelievable love for us. And I, I am of the mind, I'm of the opinion that this morning is going to be different. This morning is going to be special. So we invite your spirit to lead us, to speak through me, and make this truth real. In your name we pray, amen. So in the first stanza, remember they're broken up in, in six verses per stanza. So in these first six verses, Davis is going to, David's going to focus in on the fact that God knows everything. Verse 1, he says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. The word there for search literally means to dig deep. So it's not just surface, superficial knowledge. He's actually digging deep. He's going below the surface to the very core of our hearts in order that he may know you and I. And the Hebrew word here for know is the Hebrew word yada. And it's also used where Adam knew, Adam yada Eve, and she conceived a child. So it's not a knowing about, it's an intimate knowledge. It's a, it's a unique, special bond here. And so God, he's dug deep below the surface, deep within your heart, deep within your soul, and he, he understands you. He knows you now. There's an intimate knowledge for you and I. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. He knows what we're doing. He, he, he understands us our thoughts from afar. Long before we have these thoughts, he understands them. And the word scrutinize here doesn't mean to judge or to criticize. It just simply means to examine. Meaning that he's, he's kind of looked at it from every different angle. Most importantly, he's seen it from my perspective. And so what it means here is that, that God, he understands you and I. He gets you and I. And that's amazing to me. You know, I've, I've lived with my wife, Joy, for almost 16 years, and I don't get her. And you know what? She doesn't get me either. But God does. 
God understands me. God gets me. He knows how I think. He knows how I tick. He knows what's going on. He understands how I got to where I am today and all the decisions that took to bring me to this place. He's intimately acquainted with me in all that I think and all that I do. Verse four, he goes on. He says, even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. Before I speak, he knows what I'm going to say. I have a friend, he likes to say, has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurs to God? I kind of like that idea, but, you know, God's never surprised. He's never sitting there going, oh, man, I can't believe you did that. I, I never saw that coming. He's never surprised by that. He knows what's happening. Before you even think about the word you're going to say, he's going to say it. And so what that means is God can never be disappointed with us. He can never be shocked. He knew what was coming. And, and what that means is when it comes to understanding his love, his love's not reactionary. God's love is going up and down depending upon the situation, the circumstances. You did good, I love you. You struggled, you did poorly, I love you less. You're able to help out and serve, I love you more. You slept in and skipped it, I love you less. That's not how God's love works. It doesn't go up and down. God, he, he understood all of eternity before it even began. And he looked at your whole life, knowing all your successes and all your failures, and said, I choose to love you no matter what. So his love is a steady love. It's a rock steady love. It's never going to go up or down because he loves us perfectly. So instead of being surprised or disappointed in my sin and my failure, he just nods and says, I knew it was going to happen. And it's okay because I made provision for it on the cross. In fact, it's why Jesus died. I factored all of that in when I chose to love you. So God has wrapped me in a hug. Or sorry, uh, you've enclosed me behind him before and laid your hand upon me. I picture this line caused me to picture about a hug. This, this fact that God has wrapped himself all around me from front, behind, from east to west. I'm so enclosed. I'm literally fortified and protected in this hug, protected in his arms. And his hand is upon me. It's, it's not a fist. It's not an anger. It's this open hand of love, this hand of blessing, he says. It's on you and I. I mean, he desires our good. Meaning God is on your side. He's for you. And so what does David say to this? He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. I have one friend, he likes to say it this way. What is our response to the gospel? What is our response to God? It's simply, wow, and thank you. And that's what David's basically saying here is, I see this love. I see this, this perfect unconditional, limitless, reckless love. And, and there's no words. There's, there's no way to describe it. There's no way to understand it. So that's really encouraging because our job today is to try to understand that which cannot be understood. To try to wrap our minds around a love that is simply too grand, too wide, too enormous to ever even come close to doing so. But it's not to get it. It's not to figure it out. I don't think that's the point of it. That's not why we're going to wrestle through and try to understand God's love. It, it's, I think of it's like the ocean. You know, you, you imagine the vastness of the ocean and, and 
how, how much sense would it make for you and I to look at that ocean and say, well, I think I can go and just gather the whole ocean up in my arms. Would that make sense? No, it's ridiculous, but it's, it's also not the right approach. It's not what we need to do when we go to, to look at the ocean. Instead, what the ocean asks for is simply come in and play. Come in and enjoy. And that's, I think, what it is about God's love. It, it's not something you and I have to fully understand and fully get, especially intellectually. But rather, you just wade into and you enjoy. You enjoy the beauty of it, the power of it. You get to experience and play in it. Well, that, that's the first stanza. Now we come to the second stanza, verses 7 to 12. And here David celebrates the truth, is the truth that God is everywhere where we go. Verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? David isn't actually looking to escape. It's not his goal to run away from God. He's simply saying, if I walk over here or if I run over there, where can I go? Where, where can I get away from you? I can't, I can't escape your presence. And the Hebrew here for presence is literally faith. Face, sorry. And I love that idea that wherever you go, God's face is right there. Think about that. No matter where you run, you run this way, you run over there. He's right there waiting for you face to face. And I, and I think that's a beautiful picture because it speaks to the intimacy that you and I have with, we have with our Father. You think about two lovers lying in bed face to face as they stare deeply and longingly into each other's eyes and into each other's souls. Or, or a mother nursing her baby and the baby's right there and she's looking down face to face in that little angel. And that's who God is to us. He has that face to face encounter with us. Verse 8, if I ascend in heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I go to heaven, you're there. If I, if I go to the depths of the earth, you're there. It's, he's showing the opposites of there's nowhere where you can go where God's not going to be. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, if I fly away here or I run into the ocean as far as I can, it's, it's sort of like, again, east to west. He's going to the extremes here. And no matter where, God's right there. God's present. You know, it's incredible. You think about what man has been able to accomplish, all right? The, the, the fact that we've been able to uh, fly airplanes and travel all over the world. We've been to the North Pole, to the South Pole. We've been to the, the peak of the earth, the, the Mount Everest. We've been into outer space, to the moon. And we've actually been able to see pictures from beyond our solar system. And yet, despite all of that, there are places in this world that man has never visited. There are depths in the ocean that man has not yet been to. But one day, maybe, we'll have the technology and the ability, and man will travel down there. And you know what we'll discover is waiting for us? God waving. You made it. I'm right here. No matter where you go, he's right there face to face with us. Verse 10, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will hold me up. You can't go anywhere to run from God and his love. And it's that hand is literally preventing you from stumbling. And it's the right hand of approval. So basically he's saying, my love, my approval will keep you from stumbling and from falling. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. 
You know, my wife, Joyce, she, she likes to joke sometimes that some people are a glass half full and other people are a glass half empty kind of people. But, but she's just a water just sucks kind of girl. <laughs> so it doesn't matter. It's just the water is no good. That's, that's sometimes she finds herself into that mindset, that, that pessimistic uh, mindset. And, and that can be the case here where, where David's basically saying that the darkness will overwhelm me. And, and even the light, even what's good, it sucks. It's misery around me. And so in these times of darkness, in these times we feel misery, we feel great sadness, we feel alone and empty and fearful, anxious. We're just terrified of what's awaiting us in this darkness. But then verse 12, even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. See, God's not overwhelmed. He's not afraid. He's not shaken or even worried. Because to him, even in the darkest of darkness, there's still light to him. You see, he's not, he's not terrified in these difficult times. Because he understands how he can use and leverage these difficult and dark times to our good and to our benefit. You see, that kind of helps us understand the whole question. Well, why did you even allow this dark time in the first place? I mean, if you loved me, wouldn't you have prevented this from me? Wouldn't, wouldn't you have shielded me or protected me from this, this difficult time? Wouldn't you have somehow performed a miracle to, to take away the problem and take away the issue? But you see, he understands and he knows that it's in those difficult times, in those darkness, where we often mature the most where we begin to learn a faith in God, a trust in God that we never knew possible before. And so he's using those difficult times. He's using those darkness to help us to, to see him and who he is and his power and his strength in ways that we never knew possible before. The problem is we're feeling tired. We're feeling exhausted. We're feeling stripped away at these points. And to hear this idea, well, that God's going to use this for my good is almost like an empty cliche at this point. And that's, that's my concern for you this morning as you hear this truth. Well, God's working it for your good. He's, he's going to transform it somehow because, you know, God uses all things for our good. We just got to trust him and all that. And it can become across as an empty cliche. And I don't want it to be that because suffering is too painful. It's too precious. There's too much for us to, to learn and to, to gain from these difficult times. We don't want to lose out on it. So I thought about God. God, give me an illustration. Help us understand why, why suffering is required. I mean, there's lots of ways to learn, but there's something about suffering that we, just seems to be unavoidable. What is it about suffering that's so critical? And he gave me this picture of a candle. I want you to imagine now, if we were able to shut all the lights out in this gym and, and even block all the sunlight, and so it's completely pitch black in here, all except for but one candle, where would your eyes be? Be on the candle. It'd be focused on that little bit of light that's showing up in the darkness because our eyes are just drawn to it. It's like at a campfire, right? You're in that campfire. It's middle of the night and everybody's eyes are just focused on that one little fire because that's the only bit of light you see. And you see, that's what suffering does for us. 
It helps us to focus our attention, focus our eyes. Because right now, there's so much to be distracted in this room. You can be distracted by the screen, by the, by the basketball nets, by the walls, by the, by the, you know, the number of squares on the walls. You can be di- distracted by the, all the chairs and the lines on the floor. There's so much to distract you. But if we were to shut all the lights off and just have a candle, suddenly you're focused on one thing. And that's what suffering does for us. Because we get so distracted in our, in our lives, in our world. We get distracted with our job and, and with, the, with the vacation that's coming up and, and the problems with the car and paying the bills and, and what clothes I'm going to wear and all these, these things that are important but not the most important. And then suffering hits. A trial hits. A, a, a crisis of some sort happens. Maybe it's health-related. Maybe it's with your, uh, with your job or, or with a loved one, a relationship. And suddenly now everything becomes in focus. What really matters comes to the forefront. And that's what suffering does here. And so God's not scared of the suffering. He's not terrified of the suffering because he understands how he can use and leverage that suffering to our good. That it focuses our attention onto him and his strength and his power and his love to you and I. That brings us now to our third stanza. And here David sings about God's intimate knowledge of him. Verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. Literally, that that means as you and I were handcrafted. We were completely unique. There's, there's no one else like you. And in Jim's case, that's really good, by the way, right? So it's just, you're so special. You're so loved that, that God weaved you together all by, you know, by himself in that safety of your mother's womb. Verse 14, I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. And my, my soul knows it very well. David responds with the knowledge that that God's works, God's workmanship is incredible, is wonderful. And who is he talking about? He's talking about himself. He's recognizing that who he is, who God has made, is someone of value and someone important and incredible. And so what ends up happening is we can begin to actually accept that we have value and worth. Too often, especially in the church, we think that humility is having a negative view towards yourself. And the reality is humility is just having an honest view of yourself. And the reality is you and I are, uh, we can't put a price on who you are and your value and your worth. We know this just intrinsically. A few years ago, if you remember, there was an Ebola crisis going on in West Africa. And I remember reading news reports about two doctors who were there helping and, and treating the people with the virus. They contracted the virus themselves, two American doctors. And so what ended up happening is they ended up flying these two doctors back on two separate planes where nobody was on the flights except for the doctors and the pilots and one of the patients. Two separate flights because they wanted to quarantine this, each patient. And they flew them back to Atlanta and then set them up in a, in a hospital so that the CDC, the Center of Disease Control in, in Atlanta, Georgia, could look after them with the best doctors, the best nurses, round-the-clock round care, looking after these two people. 
and nobody even asks how much it cost. I can only imagine the millions of dollars spent on these two individuals, but nobody cared. Why? Because we know you can't put a value on a person. You can't put a value on their life. We even know this when it comes to abortion, right? I mean, we can't, we can't even recognize that, that, that a child is being killed, so we have to say it's a fetus because now it's not a person. Because we can't even justify in our minds that if, if we were to abort a child, that would be taking a human life. So we, we downgrade it in our world, in our society. But the reality is that's a person of intrinsic value. Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. When nobody saw you, God created you. He wrought you. Literally, that word for wrought is to embroider. What a beautiful picture that is, I think, of the time and effort and the, the precision it takes to embroider something. And that's what God did when he made you. He embroidered you. And, and I think it's, it's a beautiful picture, too, when you think about an embroidery. You know, often when you see an embroidery, there's a one side and it's just beautiful. This, this picture, this landscape or a verse or something. And then if you were to flip over and see the other side of it, what would you see? Kind of strings everywhere, right? Just this giant mess of strings. And I think that's often a picture of how we perceive ourselves. That on the outside, we try to project this image like everything's fine. Everything's neat. Everything's clean. Everything's okay. But if you could ever kind of turn us around and see what's going on behind the scenes, you would see this jumbled mess of strings everywhere. These anxieties and this fear and this shame and this insecurities and so forth. And that's kind of how we project ourselves. But what's interesting about the master embroiderers, the people who really know what they're doing, that they can do it in such a way that the inside is as clean as the outside. That what you see on the back looks just as clean as what you see on the front. And I think that's what God's doing with our souls. Is right now our souls are a mess of anxiety and fears and insecurities. And God's sort of pulling out some of the strings and, and restitching things together and cleaning it up so our insides can match the beauty of the outsides. In terms of what we project can actually be true of us inside. In verse 16, your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Long before I ever walked this earth, God wrote my story. He didn't, he didn't invent my story in the sense that he controlled all the aspects of it, but knowing all that was going to happen, he wrote out my story. I kind of picture it this way, that... Before the foundations of the world, there was God sitting in his den, sitting in his office, and he pulls out this book, and he wrote every day and every moment of my life in this book. And being the master storyteller, he didn't write just my story, but he wrote all of your stories. And he, he wove all of our stories together so that on this morning, our stories would, would intertwine with one another. And so he's got a book for each of us just sitting up in his library. And, and in these stories, you have these great days, these exciting days, you know, days of, of first, first walking, first day at school, the first time you scored a goal and the first date and the prom and all these wonderful, exciting days. But, but also within the story are sad days, are difficult days. 
days of failures and days of being betrayed and being hurt and being rejected. It's all part of our story. Everything that he's woven together, everything that he's written. And that's going to bring us now to the, to the climax, the pinnacle of, the, of this psalm. Everything's been building upwards, upwards until he comes to this, this great conclusion. He's basically been telling us over and over again how Father knows all of my ways. He understands me and he gets me and he has searched me out completely and he's vetted every inch of me. There's not a single fiber or part of me that he doesn't fully understand. And so part of me actually shudders at that thought. Because some of my thoughts and some of my actions have been less than honorable. See, if he knows all of my doings, that means he knows all of my sins. If he knows all of my future, he knows all of my future failings. If he knows all about my thoughts, he even knows all about the sinful ones. And so what will he say? What will will he do to me, particularly with the shame that I struggle with and what I think should happen to me? What will be his response towards me? Surely he must be disgusted with me as well. But look at the response. Look what David says is the attitude and opinion. Verse 17, how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awoke, I'm still with you. Despite all that would appear to be negative against me, despite all that would seem to be stacked against me, God's love for me is unchanged. It's perfect. It's never diminished. And if I were to count the number of precious thoughts, it would outnumber the sand. You know, when I first read that verse, in my mind I read it this way. If I were to count up all the precious thought God had for me, it would outnumber the sand on the seashore. Except that's not what the verse says. It doesn't say sand on the seashore. It just says sand. So yes, it includes the sand that's on the seashore, every grain of sand in all the seashores in all the world, but it also includes all the sand that's under the sea. And not just all the sand on the seashore and under the sea, but all the sand that's inland as well. And all the sand that's in the mountains, and all the sand that's in the deserts, and all the sand that's gone under the concrete, But it doesn't just say all the sand of the world. It says all the sand. So you got to include all the sand in the moon and in all the asteroids and all the other planets and all the moons around those planets. But it doesn't just say all the sand in our solar system. So you got to include all the solar systems and all the galaxies and all the galaxies and all the universe. He says, if you were to count every grain of sand in the entire universe it still would not come close to the number of precious thoughts that I have for you, God says. Simply put, I would say it this way. God is consumed by his love for you and I. It's all he thinks about. It's all that crosses his mind. It's all that he thinks about over and over and over again. And when we begin to understand that love, it completely changes how we see ourselves and how we live. Because it's a response to that love that begins to motivate and control us. 
So that brings us now to the fourth and final stanza, David's response to all this. In the first three stanzas, he was talking about who God is and his infinite wisdom and knowledge and love towards us. But this last stanza is the application. So how do we respond? In verse 19, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. For they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Verse 21, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I, do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Boy, that seems out of place. That just doesn't seem to fit. I mean, we've got this beautiful love song, this love story here. Those first three verses are for reverse stanzas. And suddenly now he breaks off into this diatribe. What's he saying here? We have to remember who wrote this song. It's David. And David's a warrior. When I think of warrior, I think of William Wallace from Braveheart. Anytime I can work William Wallace into a message, I'm going to, by the way, just so you know, right? He's a warrior. He's a fighter. And so what is he saying to God here? He's saying, God, I'm on your side. Your enemy, that's my enemy. The ones who hate you, I hate. I'm with you. I'm for you. I'm your side. I'm going to go into battle with you. I've got your back. That's basically what he's saying. He's, he's declaring and swearing his allegiance to God because of this great love. And so that first step of swearing allegiance now leads us to really the conclusion here in verses 23 and 24. And everything's been building up to this point. Everything's been leading up to what David's going to do now in verses 23 and 24. And he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there's any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. The word search here in verse 23 is the same word in verse one. It's to dig deep. But here's what's different. He uses it differently. In verse one, he says, God, you have dug deep. You have searched me. You have known me. But verse 23, he's inviting him to do so. He's inviting God to begin this search. And, and so what does that mean? How do, we, how do we understand this? What is he getting at here with this invitation in verse 23 that God's already done in verse 21? And, and I think it all hinges on our understanding of that word hurtful. Too often the messages I've heard around this verse have been that search me, O God, and show me all my wicked, sinful ways. Show me how I lie and how I cheat and how I steal and how I manipulate. Show me the ugliness of what I do. And, and I think there's truth to that. I, I do think that's an appropriate understanding of that, that verse and that, that passage. But I don't think it really gets to the heart of it. See, the word there that's translated hurtful is really painful or sorrow. So what he's really saying is, God, search me, search my heart, search my, my soul and reveal to me, expose all of my hurts, my sorrows, my pains. Because I don't want to struggle with that anymore. I don't want to, I don't want to deal with that hurt and that carry that pain all the rest of my lives because it's leading all to these bad choices. And so the question that David has been trying to answer this whole time is, Will I invite God to come and to heal my hurts and my sorrows? Will I invite him in because of his love for me 
and do the work that, although may be painful, is necessary. Let me illustrate it this way. I, this is how I kind of picture the verse. I, I've got little kids. I've got five kids at home. They're growing up, not so little anymore, some of them, which is scaring me. But, you know, they'd get hurt, and they'd come running to daddy or running to mommy, and they'd maybe have like a scratch in the, on their arm. And so they got their hand on their forearm, and they're covering up their wound, and they're crying, they're screaming, like, oh, I got hurt, I got hurt. And they're just all upset. And they're, they're showing me this forearm, but this hand covering their wound. And so what do I say to them? Let me see it. And they go, no, no, I'm not doing it. I go, well, I can't help you. Let me see. No, I won't. It's almost like they think that if they take their hand away just for a second, blood's just going to go shooting out and they're going to die instantly, right? So they're going to be, if I take my hand away, it's instant death. Or if I take my hand away, it's going to be worse than I can even imagine. So I don't want to, I just, I can already imagine it's horrible. I already imagine I'm going to lose my arm as a result of this hurt. So I just, I got to keep my hand here. The only thing that's keeping me safe is my hand on the wound. And what do I say? Let me see it. Let me see what's going on there. And you see, that's what God's doing with us. Is, is we've got these hurts, we've got these wounds, we've got these, these sorrows that we've carried our whole lives. Some going back to childhood, others going back to when we were teenagers, others when we are going back to when we were adults, others maybe even last night. And we're hurting from all this pain. And we've got our hand over the wound. And God says, let me see it. Do you know my love for you? Do you know that to the ends of the earth, I went to get you back? Let me see your pain. Let me see your sorrow. No, God. Because if I take my hand away, I'm going to die instantly. Or it's worse than I can imagine. I got to bury my pain and my sorrow as deep as I can. Then God says, but I love you no matter what. And so the question is, will you and I be like David in verse 23 and say, okay, God, search me. I'm taking my hand away. I'm not trying to bury it and stuff it and hide it anymore. I'm inviting you now to do the work that is required so that I can find freedom. That I can experience the healing that you want to give me. And it may be difficult, and, and it may not be easy. It may, may, may cause a lot of pain as he begins to poke around all that. But understand, all that you're going through, God is using and bringing you to redemption and to healing. And it's a healing that rarely ever happens alone. It's not just you and God go off on your own, although it can be. Instead, what God often does, he invites others around others to come and stand with you and support you and to walk with you and and I want you to know here at New Life that's what we want to be in particular myself and Greg we would love to to talk with you and pray with you but there's others here as well that would love to just to stand with you in your hurt not trying to fix you that's God's job but just to be with you and to stand alongside you let's pray heavenly father You are a kind and loving and compassionate God, more than we could ever imagine and dream. And Father, we we would like you to search our hearts, 
show those things that are causing us sorrows and pains and are, is tripping us up so that we don't have to live that way anymore. That instead we could experience this perfect, overwhelming, never-ending, reckless kind of love. And that that love for us and in us could flow through us so that the world around us can see you in us. We love you, Jesus, and thank you for all that you have done and are doing. In your name we pray, amen. All right, if you got little kids, we're going to ask you to go make a beeline because we ran a little bit late. So uh, go rescue those people in the lion's den. But otherwise, stick around. Let's enjoy a great time of fellowship together. Thanks for coming out this morning.